Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Tin. Uh, I'm doing the second Bible reading this morning, and it is taken out from First uh, Corinthians, verse uh, chapter six, uh, verse nine to uh, twenty. Or do you not know that wrongdoer will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkard, nor slanderer, nor swindler will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in the body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the voice of the Lord. Well, thank you, Tin, for bringing us that reading. Well, perhaps just before we start, a, a word, of, word of caution, a warning to especially parents watching with your children. Uh, we will be looking at the biblical principle of uh, sexual expression. And perhaps it's worth knowing that uh, there won't be anything graphic. Um, it's not M-rated. If anything, it's PG. So I'll leave it to the wisdom of you, the parents, to decide whether you want the kids to listen in. But let's uh, pray as we begin. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray that you'll help us think your thoughts after you, that we'll submit to your good design as we think about sexual expression and what sex is about. Uh, give us wisdom, give us humility, and help us, Lord, to come at this topic with the right attitude. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we are looking at the topic of God-designed sexual expression. What does God say about sex? Now, when you hear the word sex, what is it that comes to mind? Well, I suspect for some of us now at home, we might be feeling a bit uncomfortable, and I don't blame you. 
Some of you might even be thinking, this is church, a church service. We don't talk about this. This is a Presbyterian church, for goodness sake. We don't talk about sex in a Presbyterian church. Well, the only problem with that is if churches and pastors and ministers and youth leaders and parents do not speak about sex from God's perspective, we'll learn it from somewhere else. Our children will learn it from somewhere else. In fact, according to a longitudinal study of Australian children, so this is an Australian study, by 16 or 17 years old, about two-thirds of teenagers have had a romantic relationship. And one-third of those would have already slept with someone. That's by 16, 17. Shocking numbers. And of course, first exposure to anything sexual will be much younger than that. But not only that, unless we learn and speak about sex from God's perspective, it will always be clouded in taboo with a sense of guilt and shame. But it shouldn't be. I mean, God is not embarrassed in speaking about sex. It was, in fact, quite interesting in our growth group this past week. I asked our growth group members how many of us learnt about sex from our parents. And do you know how many? Zero. Zero. I mean, I grew up being taught that babies come from armpits, but that's a different story for another time. Well, unless we learn about the goodness of sex by God's good design, will have distorted views about sex, and so will our children have distorted views of sex. You see, in our household, it was really wonderful just to hear from the Sorensons then and what they do in their household. But in our household, when our kids turned seven, we gave them the sex talk. And you might be thinking that's, that's perhaps a bit young, but we wanted to get in before the world got to them. We wanted them to see the good thing about sex in God's good design within the safety and covenant of marriage. Now understand, as we reflect on this topic, it is a sensitive topic for many of us. Many of us come to this topic with feelings of, of guilt and shame and hurt and perhaps a burden you're bearing, or even that, that sense of filth and dirt. But as we consider this topic, we must remember we come to a God who knows everything about us already. There is nothing hidden from him, but yet he loves us still. And none of us should ever think, whatever our past may be, that God will never receive us, that I'm damaged goods. And so perhaps for some of you, it is important for you to hear this even before we reflect on the topic of sex. It's important for you to know that you are never too broken or too damaged for Jesus to pick you up, to restore you, to renew you, to cleanse you. I mean, that is the good news of the gospel, and that is what the gospel does. But at this point, I want to also acknowledge that for some, the hurt and the disgust you feel when thinking about sex was because of something that was done to you. I mean, sexual abuse, I know some are living with that, that hurt and burden, and, and my heart goes out to you. It's not the way it was meant to be. 
is certainly not God's good design for sex. And I'm so sorry you had to experience that. It is wrong and it was not your fault. But in the gospel, there is genuine healing, genuine cleansing, because there is the unconditional love of our Father in heaven who receives us and embraces us. And so, what does God teach about sex? Well, I'll make three big points, and a lot of sub-points, but three big points. God is for sex, sex is for marriage, and marriage is for many things. And so firstly, God is for sex. God is for sex. God is not anti-sex. God is not repressive about sex. Now, that might come as a surprise to you, but it shouldn't be. You see, God is for sex because he designed it. He is the inventor. He created sex. God knows more about sex than anyone, than everyone. Whatever the experts say, whatever the magazines say, whatever Women's Weekly say, if anyone is an expert on sex, it is God himself. And God designed it as something between one man and one woman within marriage. It is something that is biologically, physiologically, it matches and it complements between one man and one woman. It is natural by design and purpose. Despite what we are told in our world, it is natural the way God designed it, like two pieces of a puzzle that matches together perfectly. And so the maleness of Adam and the femaleness of Eve were no accident. Them coming together in this one flesh union was no accident. Them experiencing sexual relation with one another in marriage was no accident, but was by God's good design. And God made it good. In fact, in the Bible, there's a whole book dedicated to erotic love. That is the book of the Song of Songs. And thank you, Greg, for reading that first passage. You see, in this book, we, we find that the attractiveness, the, the beauty, the desire, the delight of sex is something that is to be affirmed and accepted as God's good gift to humanity. And if you get the chance, have a read through the book of the Song of Songs. And you'll find there the lovers, they're quite graphic in, in quite poetic language as they describe one another. Well, let me remind you of some parts of that first reading. In chapter 7, your graceful legs are like jewels, your navel is a rounded goblet, your waist is like a mound of wheat, breasts like two fawns, twins of a gazelle, and later on, nose like a tower of Lebanon. Now, now let me suggest, don't try to imagine that too long, because it's pretty freaky looking. If anything, it sounds like something out of a horror movie, it'll give you nightmares. But of course, it is poetic language that celebrates erotic sexual love. When the man and the woman, they are intoxicated with each other. You see, there is a good place in that. And in the, in the Song of Songs, it is fenced in for marriage only, within the boundaries of marriage. You see, if anything, if you call yourself a Christian, we are to hold the highest view of sex. You see, what our society has done with sex, with the sexual revolution and the sexual freedoms, it has become so sex-obsessed. 
We see this from the advertisement, the music, the movies, the, the clothing. It's so sex-obsessed that it has diminished its value, emptied it of its meaning, and it has cheapened what God designed as good. Especially when sex is meant to be seen as casual and shared around, as though that does not leave lasting hurt and pain and scars. Of course it does. You see, adultery and one-night stand and casual sex, you may think nothing of it, whatever our world tells us, but it will leave scars, emotional scars. Instead, the high view that we Christians are to hold is that it is like a precious jewel that is sacred and reserved for the marriage bed. And that is the better story. God is for sex. And so God is for sex, but sex is for marriage. God is for sex, but sex is for marriage. Though God is for sex, he's not for all use of sex. It was designed only for marriage, within the safety, the loyalty, lifelong, selfless, self-giving faithfulness of marriage. And so what this means is that good and right sex, you want good and right sex in God's good design, it is called marital sex between husband and wife. And God designed it this way, not because he's a killjoy, but because he understands its nature and power. And you can't argue against a designer. Whatever the experts say today, whatever our laws say, whatever society says, you cannot argue with the designer. Safe sex is not about using the right protection. That is a lie. Safe sex is about marital sex. Only there is a good and right. But what this means is that all other sexual activity before and outside of marriage is bad and wrong sex. It is so powerfully destructive outside of marriage. And I'm sure we all know stories like that, how it destroys relationships, how it causes hurt. In our second reading in 1 Corinthians, it speaks of sexual immorality. And as Christians, we need to take this very seriously. We need to take this seriously. The word used in this passage is the word porneia, which means it's a catch-all term for all sexual activity outside of marriage be it verbal or visual or virtue or physical, it is wrong outside of marriage. And Paul puts it as plainly as possible in this passage. There are eternal consequences. And so we read, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. There are eternal consequences. You see, when it comes to thinking about sex, it is only good and pure in marriage. Anything outside, it is in fact not just a preference or a choice, whatever you want. It is in fact, according to God, morally wrong, morally evil. Casual sex. 
fooling around while dating. I mean, this is not what I say, it's what the Bible says. And so if you are not ready for lifelong, faithful, covenantal marriage, then you're not ready for sex. And if you're not ready to give yourself to someone in lifelong marriage, then you're not ready to give your body to anyone. And that's why in the Song of Songs, we read, Solomon says, Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And that's because once love is ignited, it wants to move somewhere, it wants to go somewhere, it wants to be consummated, but that cannot happen until marriage. And so don't awaken it. And so good sex, then, is marital sex. But it is also a marital need, as opposed to an individual personal need. There is a distinction there. You see, our society is so powerfully influential, and we are led to believe that every single individual needs sex to survive. We must not be oppressed by our sexual desires. That's what our society teaches us. And so if you end up being like the 40-year-old virgin, you're somehow subhuman. But of course, that is not true at all. It is marriage that needs sex to survive, not the individual. Now, this is not to deny that everyone, or at least most people, have sexual desire. But you see, sexual desire is not a sexual need. It is an important distinction. Sexual desire is not a sexual need. A desire can be controlled. A need must be satisfied. And so a need, I need to eat and drink, otherwise I die, that is a need. But a desire can be controlled. I mean, we all desire all sorts of things, don't we? We all desire all things that are perhaps not good for us. I desire to have ice cream for every single meal. But if I give in to my desire, it's not going to be good for my health. I should be self-controlled. You see, there is a, a marital need for sex. It is not a personal need. It is a subtle distinction. But it is a distinction. You see, if God intended for there to be a personal need for sex, then that would justify sex outside of marriage. Or it would make sense that everyone must get married, but that is not the case in God's good design. It is the marriage that needs it. It is the divine superglue that enables lifelong, faithful, steadfast love. It is sex that cements and maintains the bond of marriage in the deepest possible way. And the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7, he describes sex as a self-giving to the other. It is an obligation that husband and wife have to each other and it is mutual. It is not for taking, it is for giving. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should fulfill his marital duty, or the word there is also obligation or debt to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. You see, it's not to be taken or abused. It is a self-giving for the good of the marriage. And so a partial note here, and that is, if you are married 
and there is some difficulty in this department, then do speak out and seek help for that. Do speak to the elders. We are here for you. And so there is a marital need for sex. It is good for the marriage. And it's been described like it's like the Sabbath rest for the couple. I love it how Christopher Ash describes it in his book. He says, The restorative effect of sexual delight on husband and wife may perhaps be considered by analogy with the blessing of the Sabbath. Just as rhythms of Sabbath rest are instituted by the Creator for the sake of man to refresh him so that his work may be a joy, so sexual delight within marriage may refresh and restore husband and wife for the work to which the Creator has called them. Remember how from last week marriage is in the service of God and so likewise sex is also in the service of God. It is connected to that. And so in summary, God is for sex, sex is for marriage, that is the better story. But what is marriage for? Well, marriage is for many things. We looked at some of these last week. At every wedding that I've officiated as part of the rites of the Presbyterian Church, I would point out four purposes, and these are the same purposes you'll hear at any Christian wedding. And the first is, marriage was given so that husband and wife might enjoy each other's companionship, help and support. That's the first purpose. The second one, it was given for the proper expression of human sexuality. The third one, it was given so that family life might continue and that children might be brought up in the love and security of a stable and happy home. And the fourth one, it was given so that human society might be healthy and have a firm foundation. That is what marriage is for. And so in the wisdom and design of our wonderful God, sex serves each of those marital purposes as a servant to the marriage, not the master. And so if we have a look back at that diagram again, marriage is for each other. And we've already looked at how sex enables that in keeping the marriage bond tight, as husband and wife give themselves to each other in complete openness and vulnerability, nothing to fear and without shame. And marriage is for sexual expression. You can see how that is tightly connected to sex. Sex is that precious gift given in marriage, not a right to be claimed. It is the selfless, intimate giving, not the selfish taking. And it is the gospel principle that shapes what happens in the bedroom. Marriage is for children. And of course, one of the fruits of self-giving sex is children biologically by design and through the intimate mysterious expression of marital love in sex we get children and in the context and safety of lifelong covenantal marriage children are provided the best environment to grow up in where they know both their father and mother who love each other dearly and of course, marriage is also for the good of society. 
And sex in marriage serves that purpose because it provides a clear boundary around which relationships in society are to be sexual. It provides that clear boundary. And when you mess around with that boundary, you mess around with the family unit. And when you mess around with the family unit, you mess around with what is good for society. And so, for example, men getting their girlfriends pregnant and then running away from their responsibility, that is not good for society. Children born out of wedlock, that is not good for the child, nor is it good for society. Affairs, adultery, divorce, sexually transmitted disease, not good for society. I mean, how do you avoid STD? Very simple. Be faithful. One sexual partner who is your spouse for life. You don't have to worry about it. Never need to see the doctors about it. And so if you destroy the boundary of the family unit because sex goes outside of that, you destroy society. But when there are strong family units and sex remains in the place it's meant to be, that is good for society. And so that is the better story of sex. God is for sex. He designed it. Sex is for marriage. And in the context, in the boundary of marriage, it is good and pure. Marriage is for many reasons, many things, many purposes, and sex plays that part as a servant. But I do want to end now with four points, four brief points by way of implication. The first is this. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Sex is seductive, illicit, glamorous, powerful, captivating. Sexual immorality in all its forms promises so much, but it will never, ever deliver. It will only leave you feeling empty, used, and abused. You see, it's a big, fat liar. It always lies. Do not believe what society tells us. Don't ever think you can sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend and think that it's harmless. It is not harmless. Don't ever think you can try before you buy thinking that that will be good for your marriage. It will not be good for your marriage. Don't ever think that you can fool around, hook up, casual sex to, with people you don't even know, expose yourself, make yourself vulnerable without any consequences. There will be consequences. And don't ever think you can privately engage with pornography and think that it's not harming anyone. It is. And perhaps a slight digression. I think it's important for us to reflect only briefly on pornography because I suspect that this is an issue even amongst some within our church. You see, what happens with pornography, many problems with it, but what is happening subconsciously and even consciously, in pornography what you do is you turn people who are made in the image of God with worth and dignity, people who are meant to be known and cherished and loved and cared for and served, you turn people into objects to be desired. And that will only be destructive for your own marriage if you're married, it will be destructive for your future marriage if you're planning to get married. And it will be destructive for your own relationships and how you think about people. It is not good. And not only that, it is a problem for your own purity. 
And so if you are struggling, you call yourself a Christian, you are struggling, and there are some, do seek help. That The first step is to bring it to the light, out of darkness into the light, make it known, and make yourself accountable. That is the first step. Of course, commit it to God in prayer. But do speak to someone so that it is in the light. Your growth group leader, the elders. But what you do need is really a transformation of your heart. That by God's grace, in repenting, in seeking forgiveness, your heart's desire is reorientated so that you are captivated by God's love for you. How beautiful and glorious he is so that you'll see how filthy and slimy that is. You'll turn away from it and you'll turn to God wanting to love him more. And so if that is you, do speak out. Don't try to deal with it yourself. And perhaps remember this. In any of the appeals of sex, I find this quote so helpful. Gerald Cowell in his book, Pure in Heart, you will never regret resisting sin. You will always regret giving in. And so those of you who are still young, guard, guard and guard what is precious for the marriage bed. Don't play with fire thinking that you will not be burnt. You will. But pursue purity, not only because it is for your good, but because it honours God. Don't take away something that is so precious and cheapen it. And so first point, don't be deceived. Don't believe the lies. Don't give yourself away outside of marriage. It is not worth it. The second, don't feel incomplete or lacking. Sex is not the be-all and end-all. Just as human marriages itself points beyond itself to the greater, deeper, lasting union between Christ and his church. Remember that, that word last week? Every human marriage is like a whisper to that eternal marriage. And so even the great delight of sex in marriage is pointing beyond itself to that better, deeper, eternal marriage. Christopher Ash again, he puts it this way. The most climactic and rapturous delight ever experienced in sexual intimacy by a married couple in the history of the human race cannot hold a candle to the delight of that union. And so what that means then is that no one needs to feel incomplete. Whether sex in this life is tainted, whether sex in this life is marred by scars and pain, or whether there is no sex whatsoever in this life at all. And so those of you who are single, there is no need to feel incomplete. Do not believe the lies of society. No one dies from sexlessness. It may be your desire, but desires can be controlled. I mean, just consider the Apostle Paul. Consider Jesus Christ himself. You see, by your abstinence from sex, what you are doing is something quite profound. By your abstinence from sex, you are bearing testimony to the faithfulness of God. By denying yourself something because it is precious, you are showing what faithfulness to God is like. 
And though you are using your sexuality differently to those who are married, you are honoring God just the same. And so you're saying to your friends, God's way is best. Sex is sacred. It is precious. It is not to be shared around. It is only good for marriage, and I'm not missing out. And your faithfulness also points to that same future reality, just as marriage does, singleness does as well. Because in heaven, we will not be given to each other in marriage. We'll, in a sense, be single. But yet, corporately, together, our deepest yearnings and longings will be fulfilled in that joyful, lasting union with Jesus Christ. And, of course, by sexual purity, by abstaining yourself, you save yourself from many pains and broken hearts and scars and burdens and damaged relationships and a guilty conscience. And so no need to feel incomplete. Sex is not the be-all and end-all. There are no second-class citizens in the family of God. No one misses out anything if by faith Jesus is your bridegroom. Third, don't be burdened. Grace is abounding. As I started today, the sad reality is that many of us come to this with feelings of pain and hurt and scarring because of sexual failure. And perhaps some of you may be feeling desperately guilty because of this, weighed down by your past, burdened by your history. Well, it is important for you to once again hear if you are a Christian, then Jesus has redeemed you. He has renewed you. He has washed you. Come to him again. Repent. Seek forgiveness. But if you're not yet a Christian, then you can be. Turning to Jesus in faith means that you come to one who cleanses you, who gives you a new start because he died for you. You see, there is no sexual sin too big that the cross did not pay for. And there is no sexual sin too filthy that the blood of Jesus cannot cleanse. You see what Jesus says to us? He says, whatever this life might look like, look forward to that heavenly wedding day when you will be pure and spotless. There will be no scars or filth or dirt from this life at all. If there are any scars, it will be the scars I bore for you on the cross. And so third, don't be burdened. Grace is abounding. Now finally, for those of you who are married, be faithful, just as God is. Drink from your own cistern. In the words of Proverbs, drink from your own well and delight in the husband and wife God has given you. Nurture the good gift of sex in your marriage, which means be open Speak to one another about it. Speak to each other. No secrets in marriage. Be open and honest about it. But seek help if you need to. And remember, it is about self-giving and serving each other for the good and strength of the marriage. And so delight in it. Thank God for it. Praise God for it. And in the words of Proverbs, may your fountain be blessed. And so sex. God tells us a far better story of sex than the world would ever dream of. And we honour that, whether we're single 
or married. We honor God's good design as together we look forward and long for the richness and intensity of that eternal intimacy with Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in your divine wisdom, you have so designed sex to be good and special in the context of marriage, to fulfill the purpose of marriage. And so, Lord, we pray that you might be kind to us, that you might give us strength to not be deceived, give us humility that we will turn to you for forgiveness, to be unburdened, to be washed clean, and give us wisdom to see and to live out your way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.